Um, we are in a series called Planned and Unplanned Parenthood, and the idea of the series, the idea of the title was that it reflects this idea that Christmas was planned from God's perspective, and it was unplanned from the human perspective. And last week we learned about the unplanned pregnancy of Mary, and we learned about the, the story of the unplanned pregnancy of Mary from Joseph's point of view last week. Today, we're going to learn about two unplanned pregnancies. Um, John the Baptist's parents will be one of them. And then we will also learn about the unplanned pregnancy that brought about Jesus, but this time we will learn about it from Mary's point of view. So the last couple of weeks, we've been learning Matthew chapter 1. In fact, we learned all of Matthew chapter 1 these last two Sundays, and today we're going to learn Luke chapter 1. And Luke chapter 1 has 80 verses in it, okay? 80 Bible verses in Luke chapter 1. It's a very long um, chapter, so we will not be able to dive deeply into every single sentence. We're going to have to hit the high points this morning, but we're going to learn Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 80, and we're going to start with the first verse, because that's almost always the best way to do it. So I'm going to read to you the first four verses of the book of Luke. This is the introduction to the book of Luke. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. That's how Luke begins the book of Luke. Luke basically begins the book of Luke saying, what follows is a true story. Can you tell that that's what he's saying at the very beginning? If you look at the first verse, he says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative. There are a lot of people that have been writing down this story, okay? Many have undertaken to compile a narrative. Now, I guess a narrative could be fiction or it could be true, but you can tell what he means by it because he says many have undertaken to compile a narrative about what? About the events that have been fulfilled among us. This is not an untrue story. Many people are trying to write down this story, this story that happened, happened in our generation, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, right? So if they're eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses are, are something you have when something actually happens, right? Nobody claims to be an eyewitness of the Jack and the Beanstalk story, right? Eyewitnesses claimed to say, I saw this in real life. So he's saying there's a story that actually happened among us. The original eyewitnesses and servants of the word passed it down to us, and it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. That's a person's name. That's the person the book of Luke was written to. Okay? It actually wasn't written for mass publication, I don't think from Luke's perspective. He was just saying, hey, Theophilus, you need to know this story. So I wrote it down. I investigated, talked to the eyewitnesses, figured this all out, and I wrote out everything that happened so that you would know Theophilus. And why did he want Theophilus to know? It says, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So he's saying, this was accomplished among us, people saw it, I wrote it down, and I wrote it down so that you, Theophilus, would know that it's true. Now, why is that important? Why well, is it important to acknowledge right at the beginning of the Christmas story that the person who wrote it down said, this is true? And I think because not everybody treats the Bible that way. Not everybody treats the Bible that way. In fact, I can remember when I was in my late 20s and I was watching a presidential, it was a primary debate, so it was back in 2007, 
and that was an election year, and eventually the election, like the two candidates that came down to was um, Barack Obama and John McCain, but this was before that, when they hadn't decided who it was gonna be, and I was at somebody's house watching the Republican presidential debate, and I remember one of the questions that was asked to the Republican candidates was, do you believe the Bible? And I think it was even phrased, do you believe every word of the Bible, was how it was phrased which just thinking back on that now seems crazy. Like I just, the world has changed so much in 14 years. Like there, I, as I thought about it, I realized there is no way a political debate nowadays would ever have the question, do you believe the Bible? Like that would not happen. And yet just as recently as 14 years ago, that, that's what they were asked. Do you believe the Bible? And one of the candidates said this, I looked it up. I, I, I can remember, I remember at the time how I felt about what he said, but I went back and looked it up. This is, what, this is what one of the candidates said back to Do You Believe Every Word of the Bible. He said, I believe it, it being the Bible, but I don't believe it's necessarily literally true in every single respect. I think that there are parts of the Bible that are interpretive. I think there are parts of the Bible that are allegorical. I think there are parts of the Bible that are meant to be interpreted in a modern context. And as I um, listened to it, I remember how I felt at the time that I heard it. And then it was interesting this week going back and rereading it because I, I now reread it and I go, wow, this is, this is so interesting how much I both agree and disagree with this guy. Um, I say agree because I technically agree with him. I remember at the time thinking like, that's a dumb answer. But then I, and then I actually looked at it and realized I actually don't disagree with anything he said. He says, I believe it. I agree. I also believe it. Um, he says, I don't believe it's necessarily literally true in every single respect. Well, if he means that there are parts of the Bible that are not to be met and taken literally, that is true. When Jesus said he is the vine and we are the branches, he, didn't, he was not claiming to be a literal vine, nor the, are we literal branches. So I go, okay, yeah, that, that's true. He says, I think there are parts of the Bible that are allegorical. Yeah, parts of the Bible that are allegorical. There are times when Jesus told stories and after he told the story, he said, this part of the story represents this thing in reality. And this part of the story represents this thing in reality. And this part of the story represents this thing in reality. So I have to admit, there are parts of the Bible that are allegorical. And he says, and I think that there are parts of the Bible that are meant to be interpreted in a modern context. Yeah, in fact, I don't think there's just parts of the Bible. I think all of the Bible was meant to be interpreted in a modern context. I don't think the Bible was written only to the generation of people who were around when it was written. I don't think the Bible was just written to be, to be interpreted by the original readers. I believe that 2,000 years later, God intended that people in our day and age would read his word and interpret it and apply it to our context. And so I went back and reread what he wrote and thought, yeah, I actually agree with everything he said. And yet I can tell by what he said, I do not agree with what this guy believes about the Bible because, because and maybe it'd be different if, if I were a politician and I were answering in a debate, I'd have a different answer. But I think in general, if somebody were to ask me the question, do you believe the Bible? My answer would be yes. Like that's sufficient, right? Yes. But when someone goes, well, I don't think it's necessarily literally true in every case and it's allegorical and interpreted in a modern context, yeah, yeah, I believe all that. But yes is a good enough answer. And so I think that even though words like what this guy said are true, I think these sentences, what they seem to imply is that the Bible is supposed to be read like Aesop's fables. We're not supposed to assume that the stuff's true. We're just supposed to assume that it teaches us truths about how to live our life. And so the reason I wanted to start off this way with Luke is I just wanted you to notice Luke begins his gospel by making it very clear that's not what we're doing here. He's making it very clear. That's not, he starts off by saying, here's a story, and I just want to start off by letting you know these things actually happened. Okay, what things actually happened? Verse 5, here's where the story begins. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth. 
both were righteous in God's sight, <clears throat> living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. So as Luke starts his story about the life of Jesus, for some reason he chooses to start by talking about two other characters before he gets to Jesus. He starts off with Elizabeth and um, Zechariah. And Zechariah is a priest, and Elizabeth is Zechariah's wife, and they are old, right? It says both of them were well along in years. They are old, and they have no kids. And in that culture, that was a sad thing. Okay, I know in our culture, sometimes we don't feel that way. Um, we, you know, people get old, and they don't have kids, and people say, good for you, you know, that was probably a lot less annoying, and think of all the money you saved, and blah, 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 right? And so people just act like that's great. But I'm just telling you, in that culture, there was no way that it was like, oh, they were unable to conceive. How good for them? Like, this was a sad thing. In their culture, it was probably considered like, I don't know if shameful is the right word, but you know, like a disgrace that they would, that they would look at a person and go, you don't have children. What's wrong with you? Um, you know, like what, what did you do that God didn't allow, didn't allow you to be blessed with children? And not only was, I think it's sort of a disgraceful or shameful thing. Um, I think maybe in, at some points it would have just, it would have been considered a dangerous thing to not have children. See, back then there was no social security. Your children were the people who took care of you when you were old. You needed to have children so that one day when you couldn't take care of yourself, there was a next generation of people who would take care of you. To get to your old age with no kids, that was not a good thing back then. So it is probably true that Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed over and over and over again. Please, God, give us children. 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 And as best as they could tell at this point, God had said, no. Verse 8. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. So it's Zachariah's turn to do priestly duties. He's one of um, probably a whole big group of priests. And so they cast a lot to see whose turn it would be to do the priestly duties at this particular time. And um, I don't know how it all worked, although I want to say that I, I read in a book at some point that this particular job and the way they would cast a lot, it would fall on you and then it wouldn't be your turn for a long time. Like sometimes this was a once in a lifetime thing for the priest, that the, the priest would go in and go do his priestly duty. This might've been like the one time he did in his whole life. And so he travels to Jerusalem, and it's his turn, and he goes on in. And so if you notice, the passage says there's a big group of people. There's a crowd that's outside of the temple, and they're all praying. And then he goes into the temple. So a bunch of people outside. He is now inside in this big room all alone, as best as I can tell. When they went in to burn incense and do things, when the priests went in, it was not like a modern-day church building where there's a bunch of people all in the temple. He was the only guy in there. The crowd is on the outside. He's in there all by himself burning incense. And then what happens? An angel appears to him. And it says he was startled and overcome with fear, which of course he was. If you're in a big giant room all by yourself, and then suddenly there's another person there, don't you get startled? And then if the other person is not human, don't you get overcome with fear? And then the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah, which is what they always do. They show up and they scare you and then say, don't be afraid. That's like standard angel greeting. They scare you and they say, don't be afraid. And I, I'm thinking to myself, if I were one of them, you know, like, if someone said they show up and do that to me and then say, don't be afraid, I'd be like, that's what I was doing before you showed up. Not be afraid is what I was doing. But I probably wouldn't be so sassy. So, 
Don't be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. That's what the angel said. What prayer? Well, the passage hadn't told us what prayer, but I'm assuming it's probably the please give us children, please give us children, please give us children. But maybe it's more than that. Maybe it was even like, please come and save us. It's time for you, Lord, to show up like you said you would in the Old Testament. But whatever it is, it says, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. It probably was that. Oh, could we just have a son? So he says, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. And then the angel goes on and says, there will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, the him being the Lord, their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous and make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So Zechariah can figure out by what the angel is saying, this is not just my prayer has been answered, I'm going to have a son but my son is going to be a special son. This is not just we prayed and prayed and prayed and God is finally giving us a kid. No, he's going to give us a kid who will go and prepare the way for the Lord, which means the Lord God is about to show up within my child's lifetime and and my kid is going to grow up and be the one who prepares the people for the Lord. So then verse 18, Zechariah speaks back to the angel. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Saying, you're saying that my wife is going to have a kid, but this is like too long. You either went to the wrong temple or you showed up at the wrong decade. But how, this isn't possible. We're too old to be having a kid. How can, this, how can I know this? And the angel says back, verse 19, angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. I think that's the answer to his question. He says, how can I know this is true? And the angel says, I'm Gabriel. I came here from God. He said, say this. So that's how you know it's true. And then the next thing that happens, and it's something that I can only interpret as a punishment, verse 20, now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So he loses the ability to speak, not forever, but until all this takes place. And until all this takes place, well, at this point, Elizabeth hasn't even conceived yet. So let's say that takes a month or two, and then a nine-month pregnancy, and then eight days until they name the child. So we're talking about a 10, 11, almost a year that he's not able to speak because he doubted what this angel said. So now he's unable to speak, verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah. Remember, there was a crowd outside amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. Remember, he was just supposed to go in there and burn incense, not have a whole conversation. So they're wondering, what is taking him so long? Why is he still in there? It shouldn't have taken this long. And then verse 22, it says, when he did come out, he could not speak to them. And then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary and he kept making signs to them and remaining speech- and remained speechless. Can you imagine? This would be awful. Can you imagine? Pretend you're him. You have just seen the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life. An angel just appeared to you, told you that the prayers that you've been praying all your life to have a kid are finally coming true, and they're not just coming true, the Lord is about to show up. And now you walk out and there's a crowd of people saying, what happened in there? And you can't say a word, and all he can do is give them signs and remain speechless. And can you imagine giving signs for that? (laughs) 
you know, and you're sitting there going, I said, it's a bird, pooped, it, you put it in your belly, I don't, like, I don't care how good you are at charades, this is a very difficult situation. So, he can't explain it to them, and eventually he does explain some things to some people I think the passage can be saying, and I think he does it by writing things down. But he can't speak for about a year. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. I don't know for sure why that is. I think maybe it, one theory is that if you say you're pregnant when you're old, people will not believe you. But if you wait five months, perhaps they will. And so she said, verse 25, the Lord has done this for me, referring to the pregnancy. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. And that word disgrace is what I was referring to earlier, that to not have children in that culture, that would have been awful. And she goes, finally, my disgrace has been taken away. Now, the next verse is a whole new scene. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. In the sixth month of what? Well, I think you'll see later on in the story, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So the story with Zechariah and the angel takes place, and then this story that I'm about to read to you takes place maybe seven or eight months later. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel, notice, same exact angel, was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I told you, that's the standard greeting. Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will receive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So at this point, Mary must realize it's not that I'm just having a son, a son who's called the son of the Most High. That's not what other people's sons are called. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. I'm assuming if she's a young Jewish girl in the first century, which she was, probably knows enough about the book of 1 Samuel and the book of Isaiah to realize, oh, this is the Old Testament promises coming true. And she says in verse 34, Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not been intimate with a man? which is an interesting question because I would think if I were a young girl and I were engaged to a man and someone said I'm going to have a child, I would just assume that I would have the child with the man that I'm engaged to, right, if I were the woman, right? Just, why didn't she just assume that it's going to be Joseph's child, you know, later on next year when they get married? But somehow, and I don't know how, somehow the angel must have communicated to her, no, this is going to happen soon. This is going to happen before you ever marry him or are with him. This is going to happen like this year. This is going to happen right away. And she goes, well, how, how could that be true? I have not been intimate with a man. And the angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Now we know they're relatives. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. Now, one thing I want to point out about this, and I'm, I don't think this is the main point, but I, it is something that is quite interesting as Luke puts these two, two stories back to back. Something that I would not have noticed on my own, this was definitely pointed out to me, 
Um, but I think you could notice it on your own. I, I think I grew up and I heard the Christmas story so many times, and maybe I heard it like in little chunks, little episodes, and so I never noticed it when you just read it all together. And so this had to be pointed out to me. But if you just read Luke chapter 1 all in one sitting, like Theophilus probably did, maybe you would notice this. The same angel in this chapter appears to two people and has a very similar announcement. And the reaction they get from the person is very similar. And then the reaction the angel gives to the people after the reaction they get from the people is very different. Did you notice that? So Gabriel shows up and says, you're going to have a kid, you're going to have a special kid, even though it's impossible, you're going to have a special kid, to Zechariah. And Zechariah says, how? Right? And then gives a reason as to how it's not possible. We're too old. Same angel shows up a few months later to Mary, says, you're going to have a kid, not just a kid, a special kid. And she says back, how? and then lists a reason why it would be impossible. And then one of those people gets silenced for a year, and the other person gets, hmm, let me explain it to you, okay? <laughs> why is that? Did you know? I'm, just in case you didn't catch it, I'm going to read it one more time. Verse, look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Now look at verse 34. Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not been intimate, with a man. What in the world caused one of them to be punished and the other one to get this the, like, gracious explanation? So I'm gonna, I want to explain how I, why, I, I want to give you two theories on this, okay? Um, I'm going to list them from least likely to most likely, okay? The one that I think is least likely is, I, I call it the moody angel theory. <laughs> now you will not get this anywhere else, okay? <laughs> I made this one up. The moody angel theory is that Gabriel was having a bad day when he went and talked to Zechariah, okay? He had been, he had been, he had lost, he hadn't had a lot of sleep, he was frustrated, he was on edge, some other angels had told him he looked bad in white, and then he shows up, and he says, Zechariah, this is what's going to happen, and Zechariah says, how? And he's like, how dare you ask how? And he punished him, and then, about seven or eight months later, he calms down, and chills out, he went on a vacation, he had a smoothie, and then he shows up, and he says to Mary, this is what's going to happen, and she says, how? And he goes, let me explain it to you. Okay, that, that's the moody angel theory, so I, I give that to you, all right? Now, here's the one I actually believe. <laughs> the second theory is, motives matter. Motives matter. That two people can say the exact same thing and two different things are going on in their heart. That one person can say, how? And what it's communicating is, I don't believe you. You showed up at the wrong place. You, what you are saying is not true. And someone else can say, how? And they can mean, I am genuinely confused. I trust you, I just don't know what you mean. I think it's possible that two people can say the same thing and mean two different things. That God, and in this case it would be through his angel, cares about our hearts and not simply our external behaviors. There are times when external behaviors can match, but that is not showing what's going on in someone's heart. And you can see this if you look at verse 20. The angel says, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because, here's why, because you did not believe my words. The angel specifically says what was going on. You did not believe. It's not because you, you asked a question. That's not what he says. How dare you ask a question? No, it's because you did not believe my words. But then you look at the Mary version of the story, and it seems different. Look at verse 38. 
she says, I am the Lord's slave. May it be done to me according to your word. I mean, that's after the angel explains it, but still, doesn't that seem like quite, a, like that's a lot of trusting. You're, you're going to have a child and it's going to be this disgraceful thing because you're not even married. And she says, whatever God wants, I'm, I'm up for it. I'm the Lord's slave. That's a lot of trust. And so I think it is true. God himself and even through his angels cares about what's going on in our hearts and not just our external behaviors. And to know that is, that is both comforting and not comforting. It's comforting because there are occasions where you have done things for the right reason and it all blew up in your face and God knows. Isn't that encouraging? Hasn't there been times in your life where you, you, you were trying to do the right thing for the right reason? Your motives were pure and it all backfired and it blew up and it caused division and problems and people got mad at you and people are still mad at you to this day and you had prayed about it ahead of time and were trying to follow Bible verses and everything and they're still mad at you about that. You were trying so hard to do the right thing. And I think it's important to remind you, God knows that. He knows what you were trying to do. But then the reverse of that is also true. That means there are lots of times in our life where we do the right thing with the wrong motives. We do good things, and everyone on the outside looks at the good things we did and say, look at the good thing that person's doing, and we did it for the wrong reason. And God's all over that too. He knows. That's one of the reasons we need to be saved by Jesus Christ. Because we commit external sins all throughout our life, and then there are even occasions where we do the right thing for the wrong reason. And we need to be forgiven of all of that. The other thing I wanted to point out to you is verse 37. <clears throat> As the angel is answering Mary's question, part of the answer that the angel gives is, for nothing will be impossible with God. This is right after the angel points out that an impossible thing had already happened with Elizabeth having um, a child when she had been childless. And the angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. The angel is saying, God can accomplish that which is ordinarily impossible. That is important for us to understand as Christians, that there are things that are ordinarily impossible, and we need to understand that God can accomplish things that are ordinarily impossible. And the reason I'm drawing attention to this is because I think sometimes Christians get a bad reputation for being people who just believe in impossible things, like it's, like it's this irrational, illogical thing, that people will be like, oh, Christians, they're so anti-science. And they believe, like, have you ever hung out with one around Christmas time? Like, they believe virgins have babies. And so I guess I wanted to say, we don't believe virgins have babies, okay? We believe that happened one time. We believe that God caused this one. We don't believe that's the way it ordinarily works, right? We are not anti-science. Christians... Um, understand the way things ordinarily work and that a miracle is something different than the way things ordinarily work. I've, I've been a pastor for a long time now, and I was a youth pastor for a long time before that. And I can tell you, whenever I've witnessed parents find out that like, their teenage daughter was pregnant, like never once did any of them go to, well, I wonder if it's a virgin birth. After all, honey, we believe in those. Not once have I ever seen that. They all were like, who was he? Right? That's what it was every single time. Because we understand there are there are ways that things ordinarily work. Miracles are exceptions. So we as Christians do believe in science, and we do believe that there are, th there are things that ordinarily work in certain ways, but it's just we also believe God can do whatever he wants. Does that make sense? That's what this angel's saying. Okay, so 
verse uh, 39 through 45 is the next section. I'm going to skip over that section. That is Mary, and she visits Elizabeth, and they talk both when they're, while they're both pregnant. I'm going to skip straight to Mary praising God in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his slave, probably referring to herself, and maybe by extension Israel, who was being oppressed by the Romans at this time. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She realized she's not simply having a son, but that all generations will mark this. All generations will call me blessed because the Mighty One has done great things for me. His name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm, referring to her pregnancy, he has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Notice that fits with what I already said about motives matter, right? He scattered the proud. Why? Not even because of, because of the thoughts of their hearts. The arrogance on the inside of them. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And I'm, I'm interpreting this through a like, first century Jewish context, that when he's saying he's satisfied the hungry, and sent the rich away empty. The, the, the hungry are probably like her people, the Israelites, who are under oppression and, and captured by Rome. And the send the rich away empty is probably the idea like he's going to defeat the Romans, the people who think they're in charge. They're, God's going to show them they're not in charge. And it's true. God is going to one day show everybody that he's in charge. He has helped his servant Israel, mindful of his mercy, just as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And then the next scene is the birth and the naming of John the Baptist, verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. And I have never noticed this until this week. Okay? I don't know how many times I've read this story and gone to Christmas pageants and heard this read out loud, but I don't think I've ever noticed it until this week. It says, on the eighth day they were going to name him Zechariah. And as best as I can tell, the they there is the neighbors and relatives who had shown up. The neighbors and relatives showed up and they had decided we're going to name him Zechariah. Isn't that weird culturally? Like for those of you that had children, I'm sure people visited you while you were in the hospital, right? But I bet you none of them like tried to name the kid. But that's what's going on here. I think that's what's going on here. They're saying, let's name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. So at this point, Zechariah must have told her the deal, like, we're not messing with this angel. He said, John, we're going with John. And so she sticks with it. He will be called John. And then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. Like, they're still pushing. Like, they have the right to name this kid. None of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. Let's overrule her and see what dad wants. And he asked for a writing tablet. Now, why did he ask for a writing tablet? Because he can't speak. And he wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. First time that he's probably spoken in a year and the first thing he does is praise God. He doesn't go, well, that was a bit harsh and why did you? Like he praises God for what he's done. And let me read to you the prophecy. This is uh, Luke 1, starting in verse 67. Then his father, that's John the Baptist's father, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. <clears throat> Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He's, he's praising God for what's just about to happen, and he understands, I think, the significance of this. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant. He remembered his promises, right? And the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from our enemies' clutches to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when we looked through the whole genealogy in Matthew? Right? And so they're looking back and they're going, wow, these are promises that God has made. Verse 76, and child, I think at this point he's talking to John, John the Baptist as a kid, and child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zechariah here rejoices, and I think he rejoices because he realizes not just, I had a son, but he believes what the angel told him, and he realized this is, this is connected to something bigger than all that. This is not, yes, God kept a promise, but the thing that Zechariah is rejoicing is not God kept a personal promise that he made to me 10 months ago. He realizes, no, God was keeping a promise that he made to a whole bunch of people hundreds of years ago. And so if you look at verse 69 and following, he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, right? He realizes what this is connected to, salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. And he probably assumed that that was just exclusively the, the Romans. We will, be, we will be rescued from the Romans. But really, I think there's a, a lot bigger than that. There is coming a day when all of God's people will be rescued from his enemies, from their enemies. There will be, we will serve God forever one day with no opposition, and so he says, um, referring to his child, you will go before the Lord, this is verse 76, the second part of it, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptist knew that this was not simply an answer to the prayer, God, please give us children. He knew that this was a historical game changer and his son would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord and that he was keeping not just the, the promise that Gabriel made, but he was keeping the promise from long before that, that the, that the Lord was coming and his coming was right around the corner. In verse 80, the final verse of the chapter, says, you thought I couldn't do it, 80 verses in one Sunday. <laughs> we did it. The child grew up and became spiritually strong, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That's John the Baptist. And then the very next chapter, Luke chapter 2, gives us the story of the birth of Christ, which we will celebrate, if the Lord wills, right here, this Friday, at our Christmas Eve service. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these stories, and I thank you for how you have, I don't know, set up your, your church and the world and culture in such a way that like we rehearse and relive and rethink through and reread these stories. And so thank you for giving us these words that Luke wrote down for Theophilus, but that we can read for our own lives and know what you did. Pray that you'd help us to trust your word, that we would look and go, okay, Luke says this is true. And that we would know you get to do whatever you want. And so that we would trust in you. We would trust in the way that you do miracles and we would trust in the way that the world ordinarily works as you work in ordinary ways. 
I pray, pray, pray that you'd prepare our hearts for you and that we would not be like the arrogant people that are thrown down. We would not be the people who doubt within us, but that we'd be people who trust you. I pray that you would grant that to us, that we would be people who trust you and say, I'm the Lord's slave. I'm okay with whatever you say. And we thank you for keeping your promises. We thank you for keeping your promises to Mary and Zachariah. We thank you for keeping your promises that date back to David and to Abraham. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you would save us from our sins. And so just the reminder of this whole story and everything that it has to do with our reality, we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.